Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Brian Kaplan. He's an economist at George Mason University and an author. Brian wrote a letter to his young daughter encouraging her to not become a feminist, which begs the question, why would a father not want this? In what ways are women being taken advantage of by an ideology, and how might Brian be wrong? Expect to learn what trade-offs feminism is making at the moment and why they're dangerous, why feminism does not like traditionally feminine roles, why there is so much of a lack of individual agency in the modern world, where the recent trend of demonizing having children came from, why more people should not conform, how to think for yourself, and much more. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult, and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gymproof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout all right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash modern right now. That's netsuite.com slash modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Brian Kaplan. 
What is feminism, in your opinion? Great question. I don't want to say what it is in my opinion. What I want to say, rather, is how do we actually use the word? Anyone can just make up a new definition. What I really wanted to think about was, let's listen to other people and see what definition fits actual usage. And the definition that I offer is this one. Feminism is the view that our society generally treats men more fairly than women. Feminism is the view that our society generally treats men more fairly than women. Uh, if you look at official definitions, they will say things like it's just the view that men and women should be treated equally. What I point out in my essays, we got public opinion uh, data where we ask a whole lot of people and guess what? Almost everyone who says they're not a feminist still thinks that men and women should be treated equally. So that cannot possibly be the actual definition. It's more of a, an argumentative definition, like calling your newspaper truth. And then if someone disagrees with you, you say, oh, you're against truth. Right. Okay. So it's a lexical Brazilian jujitsu. Yes. <laughs> right. I understand. Why are you not a fan of it? You wrote a book for your 10 year old daughter called Don't Be a Feminist. Uh, that is correct. I mean, honestly, it just comes down to the empirics. Is it really true that our society generally treats men more fairly than women? Uh, what I did in that essay is just go over all of the main complaints that people have to this effect and try to see, does the evidence really hold up? Uh, I begin by saying, look, you can't just say that someone's treated unfairly because the performance is unequal. By that standard, I've been treated unfairly by the Olympics because I don't have any medals. What you really need to do is to go and compare someone's performance to the treatment or some of the treatment they've gotten to their performance. Uh, here as an economist, the natural thing to start with is with earnings and career success. There's been a lot of work on this, and the standard punchline is it's very easy to explain the gender gap in career success by differences in things like the number of hours that men and women work, the majors that they select in college, just the unpleasantness of the jobs. So if we go through some fairly standard differences, and of course, as well as just your priorities in life, is the job the top priority in your life or are there other things that you're balancing? And when you put all that together, you can very easily statistically explain almost all of the difference in earnings between men and women. So that's one that I talk about quite a bit. Uh, then I also go over things like complaints about inequities in dating, right? Uh, this is where I point out that there is a very strong tendency among feminists to go and compare the average woman to the most successful men, which is not really a sensible comparison. What like are they comparing? Gonna... Body count? <laughs> ah, no, you know, th you know, things more like, you know, how good is the romantic life of the very most successful men versus the very most successful women, right? So if you compare like the lives of a Hollywood actor to a Hollywood actress and say, now the Hollywood actors have it better. Right. You know, no, no, there's no female, you know, no, no actress is like Leonardo DiCaprio just right. going from with regards to what yeah. like the mating success. Yeah. Yeah. Or? So, you know, things like mating success or let's see, of course, also in jobs just saying like a certain percentage of the CEOs are men are you know, larger than 50% percentage of CEOs are men. And what I say is, look, if we're going to do that, we need to compare both the top and the bottom. And there again, there is overwhelming evidence that men are overrepresented at the bottom as well as the top. Men are much more likely to be in prison, much more likely to commit suicide, much more likely to be homeless, much more likely to be incels, to have never been on a date. So you put all this together and it's like, it's not in any sense that men in general are treated more fairly than women in general. Rather, what we have is that there is a greater spread, which again, if anything, based upon normal ideas of insurance, the group that has the smaller spread is the advantaged group. What do you mean when you say smaller spread and bigger spread? 
up. Well, you know, for things like uh, you are less likely to be far from average. So, for example, a high spread would be a group that has a lot of billionaires and a lot of homeless people, men. A low spread would be a group that has fewer billionaires and fewer homeless people, which would be women. Right. Or similarly, you could go and look at the top of achievement and say men are overrepresented in Nobel Prizes, in being best selling authors, right? Um, like in being famous composers. That's all true. Says, well, while we're at it, how about we go and take a look to see whether men are also overrepresented among the homeless, among suicides, among the unemployed? Uh, you know, long, you know, so, and let's see, actually, the last one's a little more complicated, but the other ones are all solid examples where we can see, wait a second, it looks like men are actually on those measures, they're overrepresented among those doing worst. I'm going to guess that if you did a Gini, Gini coefficient mm -hmm. for men, you would have oh, much yeah. higher inequality on pick whatever outcome it is that you want lifespan mm -hmm. health span mm -hmm. happiness mental iq income body count all yeah the rest of it. so body count is probably the main exception because there are prostitutes who just have enormous numbers of partners so oh, they, they probably <laughs> increase the inequality for okay. women right but all of your other ones are i think very good and by the way you know, like just what i'm doing is what i think everyone should be doing on these issues which is not just going and saying, I have a philosophy and it applies in all cases. It's like, let's think about the individual facts of the individual cases. And maybe your theory will work eight times out of 10. Someone who thinks the theory works a thousand times out of a thousand. It's like, yeah, that doesn't sound like anything that happens to any actual theory about human behavior. It's more like someone who's so dogmatic and fanatical in their sense of their own omni omniscience that all facts get twisted to fit the theory. Why is it the case, in your opinion, then, that feminism is still such a pervasive cultural mm -hmm. meme if your mm -hmm. assessment of it is correct, which is that the lack of fairness doesn't seem to be affecting women in the way that it's proposed? Mm -hmm. Right. That is a great question. I mean, your wording makes it sound sort of like feminism is uh, is on the decline, but it's still lingering, whereas I'd say it's probably at least near its all-time peak. In terms of what's going on, here is my story. I think there's an actually very general human tendency to care more about female well-being and especially female suffering. I don't think that this is unique to the modern world of Western countries. I think that you can read almost anything, anything written by human beings from almost any period and you'll see this norm. You can go and read ancient books like the Bible. And if you want to show that someone's really bad, you show them murdering women. Right. Same thing in mythology. This is just a general human attitude that murdering men is like, well, you know, maybe you had it coming, but murdering women, that is something that it is just a, a deeply rooted feeling in human nature that is especially horrible. And what I think has happened in the modern world is that we start with these very standard human feelings that I think are indeed deeply rooted in human nature and evolution. And then it becomes a philosophy. And once you make something a philosophy, then you take an attitude which can be balanced against other attitudes or it can just be hypocrisy, and it doesn't get that bad as, as it gets implemented. But once it becomes a philosophy, then there's a demand for consistency. And once there's a demand for consistency, then you start overruling everything else that actually comes down on the other side and also treating doubt and questions as sin. And that is, I think, what really explains the success of feminism is that it codifies human feelings that have always been around, but nevertheless have been held inconsistently and hypocritically before. 
which my view is given that the philosophy is wrong, hypocrisy and inconsistency is an improvement over consistency and uh, and single-minded devotion. Yeah, I it's an interesting point. I certainly agree based on all of the data that I've seen plus just my intuitive sense of myself. People seem to have an awful lot more sympathy for mm-hmm. women falling behind despite the fact that men on mm-hmm. average seem to be yeah. falling further behind. There's studies that have been done. People will donate way more if they find out mm-hmm. that it's an all-women's mm-hmm. shelter than if it's an all-men's yes. shelter. Yes. Uh, the, news the, the women are that, wonderful effect. Yes. Uh, news stories that uh, proclaim the successes of women seem to be treated more favorably than ones that proclaim the successes of men. There's this gamma bias that Dr. John Barry's identified, which you may be familiar with. I mean, when are there ever stories about successful men? I mean, unless it's like a homeless guy getting a job, but it's very hard to even picture what these, what this, these stories are. I can't remember. So two, two things that I think are interesting here. First one being, I don't disagree that if you were to find out that women had been murdered throughout history, you would have gone, oh my God, like this is an aberration, whereas uh, sort of male mortality is just a byproduct of existence. That being said, women being sexually assaulted by some warring tribe, you know, I, I learned about um, the cultural history of um, how relationships have evolved from a sort of culturally mimetic standpoint. And women have basically been property. They've been property of their kin. They've been property of their family. They've been property of their husbands for a very long time. So I would agree that out on the extremes for women, there are it's treated as an aberration. But there's certainly a lot of mistreatment, which has just been ah, it's part for it's a wheezy, it's a woozy, it's a we're, we're the new tribe, we're taking over the old one. So there's there's some uh, again, it's the not one thousand times out of a thousand thing. Right. I mean, there I would point out that the usual story is we first murder all the men and then we enslave the women, which is terrible. But still, it's like, well, which one you, which one would you rather be? Yeah, well, I'd rather be enslaved than murdered, probably. Depends who you're enslaved by. I yes, uh, does uh, that there is a little bit of that, although there's also, like, is there a suicide opportunity to, in case it turns out to be worse? Um, definitely my preference is enslave me first and then I will <laughs> be take, looking take for my way out my if it turns hands. out to be right. more horrible than death itself. Yeah, I mean, on the you know on the question of the legal treatment of women, I mean, of course, the, a lot of the, most of this is in the pre-modern period where we just don't have a lot of good data. I mean, there's the legal doctrine where I think that at least often you are correct. Although even there, it's a little complicated. Things like under Roman law, fathers just legally entitled to murder any of his children, regardless of their gender. Uh, now, once you hear that, it's like, well, but they weren't actually doing it. Like, yeah, I think that's true. I think it is extremely unusual, as Darwin would predict, for someone to murder their own children, even when it's totally legal. But then I think you do have to look at, well, what's the fact of the matter? Is it really true that in a society where women were legally considered to be the property of the father, that he actually, that fathers actually did often dispose of their daughters as if they were sheep? Or rather, is it like they you know, rather were they normal human beings where whatever the law says, your daughter says, I don't want to marry him, daddy. And he's like, oh, well, I couldn't possibly say no to her. She was crying. I think that, again, there are human universals. And while there are, of course, cruel people who will do terrible things if the law allows it, much more common for the emotions that we take for granted today to have always existed. and Like, always like whining, the emotion yes. of, of whining yeah. and complaining. Yeah, I mean, you think that started after the, the pair, like because the law changed. Okay. So, yeah, like, like of yeah, course, people, a- have, people have always been doing these kinds of things. And, and again, just the way that if you read the literature of, old, of earlier periods, you'll see that 
it does not seem like women are living in fear of their fathers going and doing things to them because yeah, evolution fathers love their children. They love their daughters. They love their sons. And then on, you know, on top of this is this is a very basic human feeling that women's suffering is especially important. Um, so, you know, like my favorite example of this that I mentioned was the Hillary Clinton quote about how women are the biggest losers in war because they lose fathers and sons. It's like, um, Hmm. Yeah. Don't the fathers and sons lose more because they're dead. Yeah. Well, this, uh, are you familiar with gamma bias? Have you heard this before? Let's see. Maybe under, so is it like, like not caring much about the lowest status people or what is it? It's specifically men. So, Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. John Barry's center for male psychology came up with this. It's really interesting insight. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Um, if there is a story which is pro female, it will sex the person. If it's pro-male, it will desex it. If it's anti-male, it will sex the person. If it's anti-female, it will desex it. Ah, yes, very so good. So you end up with a skew. So for instance- So uh, why is it called the gamma? Uh, I, I don't know. You'd have to ask him. He's been on the show and I'm pretty sure I did. Uh, I feel like there's other biases that come before it. And this this happens to be there because it's in order. I'm not sure. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So for instance, uh, Sarah Everard was this um, uh, young woman walking through a park in the UK. She was killed by a male police officer. Absolutely terrible, right? And, and there was... Um, a lot of protests about women don't feel safe in these streets. It was a flashpoint for for sort of sex relations. One week later, a man drowned jumping into the River Thames to save a woman who had gone in. The story essentially wasn't covered, and when it was covered, his sex wasn't revealed. It was uh, a Londoner jumps in to save a person from drowning or a woman from drowning or something like that. So you do get this skew. But okay, I mean... What would be, in your opinion, it it sounds like at least part of the problem, feminism has a branding problem, right? That it's coming in with an awful lot of baggage, mimetically, culturally. What, given the fact that there are still causes that women need to have support for, even in the modern world, what would be your proposal for a uh, sanitized new version of something that could talk about women's issues? Hmm. I mean, honestly, I think I would say that step one is just to get the facts and find out whether it's even true that women are doing especially badly. And if that is if the opposite is true, then it's like, well, seems like we should be focused on men. But you, what is it? You can pat your head and rub your stomach at the same time. There will be certain areas in which we would want to focus on men. For instance, uh, I know that you've got some uh, views on circumcision. I think I align pretty much with your views on that. Like, that's a very particular wing of male disadvantage, right? Um, Looking at, is there a way that we can get women to become mothers and then get them back into the workforce? That's like a very specific element of this. So would you try and make everything quite sort of disparate and have, okay, we're going to have a employment for mothers department and we're going to have a, we need to not circumcise our children department. Hmm. I mean, that pat your head and rub your belly thing is uh, quite striking because it's, uh, of course, a lot of people can't do that. Um, what I would say is that there's always priorities. And anytime that you say that my issue is super important, you are implicitly actually saying that the other issues are le- at least as I, I should go and get some of the attention that other issues are getting. Usually you're a little hazy about what issues you want to de-emphasize. Uh, but yeah, I do think that there are actually good reasons once you realize that a problem is not a big deal, not to go and emphasize it and not to go and prioritize it. Uh, you've probably heard of effective altruism. It's this idea that philanthropy should be based upon 
first of all, how big is the problem? Second of all, how much can we do about it? And what's the actual payoff that we get? So I would say that would be the general guide. I mean, I do think that you know, not focusing on gender is at least a good presumption because it is the kind of thing that promotes the two negative emotions that I'm warning my daughter about in the essay, which first of all, antipathy of just being angry at a bunch of other people who really are not even responsible, uh, or at least you know, most of them are not. And then self-pity of just feeling like a victim. So I so said, like, you don't want to have a philosophy that encourages antipathy or self-pity. Human nature already naturally does way too much of both of these. It is better to go and try to free yourself of antipathy and self-pity than it is to foster them or to create a whole philosophy that justifies them. I mean, honestly, I think that there are a number of major issues that the view that there is a problem is just false. So like the gender pay gap, I just think that it is false to say that women are being mistreated by labor markets. So the best thing would be if there is, first of all, a recognition of this fact, second of all, an apology for making a lot of false accusations, and then we just, we're just done with it and we move on. So labor markets are actually very fair. People are getting paid based upon their performance. If you have different preferences, the market lets you satisfy those, be grateful, and stop the complaining. And if you say, well, I personally am being mistreated, like, well, then that's you know, mostly like, the, like the, you know, life is not perfectly fair, but it's not an issue primarily of, or even according to the evidence you know, like, you know, of being a woman, it's just that life's unfair. Right. So you would deal with that on a case by case basis. Yes. And just say, or and again, of course, if an individual says I'm being treated unfairly, my normal advice is, hmm, like, is the person you're dealing with at all open to reason? And it's like, well, no, if they were, <laughs> we already talked about it. Like, well, you probably need to get away from that person, right? Or unless there's some other more, you know, person above that person that's open to reason. But I mean, this is just like practical guidance for living life. You can't expect that other people are going to be fair to you overall. And you need to be on the one hand, looking out for yourself, but also not creating a big story about how life is not fair to you or to your kind when the evidence doesn't back that up. What do you think are the trade-offs that feminism is making at the moment? Because what is it? It it, it seems to me like women aren't necessarily benefiting from feminism in the way that they Mm -hmm. might think, but are they being hurt by it? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, and in a way, it almost it, it sort of reinforces my point that we especially care about women suffering. The arguments against feminism that are most acceptable are the ones where we say it's actually hurting women, right? Th- those are the ones like, oh my god, that's terrible. The it's most like, pro yeah. the, the most pro feminist argument is the anti feminist argument. Yes, um, <laughs> I mean, in terms of what's going on, so I, you know, I think for, at the individual level, the main issue is just promoting negative attitudes of antipathy and self pity. Mm-hmm. What I tell my daughter is like, it is just not true that men in general are out to get you or won't like you. You know, my advice is if you want to do well in the world, go and make, make, make as many friends as you can, especially friends with people that are in a position to go and help you. And the way that you make friends is by being friendly to them and being, and not having a, and, and, and having a positive and constructive attitude. So, and I say like antipathy gets in the way of that. Antipathy just makes your default, oh, this person is going to treat me badly. This person is going to be unreasonable or unfair. So there's that. And then same thing with the self-pity. Like, like you know, self-pity is really baked into human nature. Like you never need to encourage it. There's just so much self Poor me. I don't have the latest iPhone. It's totally human nature to feel that way. So like 
really what you need to focus on is everything that you've got, all your opportunities, be grateful for what you have. And this is the attitude of a, of a person that is going to be successful. So yeah, those are the main issues in terms of the individual woman. I'd say that there's this other big effect of just mistreating men, right? Which again is not like I said, wait, well, mistreating men, well, who cares about them? Like, yeah, that's the attitude that, I, that I'm saying is a terrible attitude. It's bad to be unjust to men. You, you should not be done just to anyone. The fact that they're men doesn't mean that it's okay and that whatever happens to them too bad. Like this is the payback for 2000 years of them mistreating us. It's like, well, was that true either? So there's that. In, you know, you know, in, ter- in terms of sort of like collective harm, I mean, you know, there's a, there is a lot of work on things like discrimination law saying that if people are worried that you're going to sue them, this is a reason for them to not hire you in the first place. I think that there's definitely something going on there and it's something to consider. In terms of whether sex discrimination law in general benefits women, though, on balance, it still might, but you know, it's a benefit that is based upon a deep injustice. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So uh, the widespread litigious nature of women, especially being super vigilant for potential um, mistreatment in the workplace, could cause some employers to look at a woman and think, oh, she looks like she's got a good solicitor. Let's not hire her in case something occurs down the line. Yeah, I mean, I I know, uh, go on. Oh yeah, I mean, so probably one of the best examples where I think it is true that women were hurt by Me Too specifically is there's a couple of papers showing that mentorship crashed after Me Too. Yep, I've seen these. And that is obviously beneficial to women to go and get extra training from someone, but uh, strikingly, the main feminist response to this was, we will not tolerate this reaction. We will, we will, we will, it is totally ridiculous to go and penalize us because of this irrational fear that you might get sued. And we're, we just need to go and tell men that this is not acceptable. And it's, hmm, yeah, well, this is a situation where uh, they're going to totally agree and then probably keep doing what is not hire you in any case hiring is it's one where it's formal and so it's easier to litigate but mentorship is informal and anything informal is very mm. hard to litigate unless you're going to have a system that just convicts people on an accusation which i think is a lot of what feminists want to do is, so what 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 i'm feeling here is you know, on on average of course there is i i emphasize everything is on average that's fine yes. the entire podcast yes. is Yes. On excellent. average, dot excellent. dot dot. Excellent. Uh, um, what I'm feeling here is uh, an echo. I'm I'm uh, sensing the equivalency on the male side of the spectrum, which I'm sure that you've seen movements like the Black Pill movement, um, uh, incel ideology, stuff like that. I have a number of friends that are very deep into the research with this, uh, and I do think that there's way less misogyny in these groups than you might think. The actual most misogynistic men are the ultra high performing chads not the ones that are the uh, sort of uh, forgotten monster energy marinated incels. But there is an awful lot of self-pity. There is an awful lot of antipathy within these groups toward the opposite sex. So this isn't necessarily a a feminist quirk. This is a natural human response that can then be kind of perpetuated and spun up once you get into a group that has an outgroup. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So I have been actually doing compare and contrast reading incel, yeah, the incel wiki and then I think the fem geek wiki. There's a lot of similarity between them. I mean, I've noticed that in arguing with feminists, they often say, Brian, you're just repeating incel talking points. I'm like, no. Uh, 
I am, I am saying some things that they say that are true while not actually adopting the whole philosophy, which I agree is a very destructive one of antipathy and self-pity. What I would say is that you know, the incels that you so despise, they really are the mirror image of you. And I think of myself as being someone who's just trying to fairly arbitrate between two unreasonable groups. Um, and, you know, and you know, of course, to go and say that women, uh, you know, on you know, on balance, are not treated less fairly than men does not mean that there aren't any specific female complaints that are true. Of course, there mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but also, there are some specific male complaints that are true. And and then, like, like, of course, like the more you read them, the more you realize, well, look, people just need to tolerate some level of unfairness in society because otherwise, people will barely be able to breathe. So yeah, and that goes both ways. Do you remember uh, Scott Aronson's description of his experience? Probably what, 15 years old now, maybe 10 years old, something like that, that blog post. Could you explain for the people who aren't familiar with this and then Scott Alexander's untitled uh, blog post after that? Could you give, I think this is really instructive. Yeah. Uh, for the record, so I'm good friends with Scott Aronson. I've hung out with him a lot in Texas, uh, but I also have read the pieces. Uh, so I will, I will claim to have some inside knowledge of the situation, although filtered through his perspective, but I trust Scott. Uh, I trust both Scots, but I especially trust Scott Aronson, who I know well personally. Uh, so Scott Aronson did a piece for his blog, Shettle Optimized, where he, you know, and this is barely even a caricature of it. He said, look, I'm, I 98% agree with feminism. Like, I'm so on board. I care so much, but I just want to say one thing, which is that when I was a teenager, I was almost suicidal. Where I really I was suicidal because I read a lot of feminist writings and I just felt like any thought I had about women was wrong, any attempt to go and talk to them, any attempt to go and just have some desperate hope, you know, effort, you know, hopeless effort to go and find a girlfriend was wrong, thought that anything that I might do or say would be harassment. And you know, eventually I learned better. But anyway, it'd be nice if in the midst of fighting actual injustice against women, you could just go and show a little bit of sympathy, a little little bit of understanding for shy male nerds like myself, especially when they're young and they just don't have much experience and they don't understand what's going on. And then the feminist reaction to this was generally hysterical, calling him a rapist or an incipient rapist. Entitled. Yes. Yes. Entitled. Like, you know, you think that you have a right to sex and it's like, he didn't say any of those things. He like, Rather, what he said is, you know, I pledge 98%, you know, 98% of what you say is true. And I just have a few slight doubts and you just be a little bit nicer. The, that's it. And for that, like, like the, the reaction was so uh, just in, absurd and insane. And, and it, is, it, it is the one where you just look at that and you say like, like, you know, this is a cult of fanatics he's talking about. I did get a chance actually to tell Scott did that really make you rethink that whole 98% thing? <laughs> I'm not going to repeat Scott's answer, but I definitely did hassle about that. Wow. Say, how about we go down more to like 5% from 98? Can we do that? Look, so here's here's the thing that I think is a, the, the, the inevitable ping pong game that occurs happening. And I saw this with Melissa Carney, who came on the podcast recently. She wrote a book called uh, The Two-Parent Privilege, uh, How America Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind, something like that. She is a policy wonk from Washington, D.C., and I tried in the episode to uh, push her beyond just what is the data telling us to what is the implication and maybe even what is the cause of this? Like, what's the give me the mechanism? Why is it the case? What is happening developmentally amongst the children? And she was very tentative, right? You know, she's written this big book about things, but she very much kind of defined the rules of play 
of where where she wasn't going to get out over her skis with regards to this. And I was like, hmm, that's like a, I, I wish that she'd just bro science her way through stuff because it's funny. But what she did was she decided I'm going to hold myself within this sort of, uh, within my realm of expertise. And I was like, that's a, a pretty good indication of somebody that's acting in good faith with a lot of expert, like, uh, and, and trying to be really, really accurate with what they say. Since she's released it, she has been slammed online, absolutely slammed. <laughs> and what I've seen, although I don't think that this is going to happen to her, I've seen somebody who is probably on a political compass test center left, certainly somebody who wrote a book to try and reduce inequality between class groups, right? This is exactly exacerbating the precise inequality that we don't want to have happen and so on and so forth. And it was written, as far as I can see, with a good amount of compassion. But I'm seeing the exact mechanism by which many people become radicalized to one side or another side of some sort of aisle because they think, well, I mean, if I guess the only people that are ever going to listen to me about the woes that I have, about the justified or sometimes unjustified antipathy or self-pity that I've got, well, I, like I'm going to go with the group that accepts me. Accepts me. I'm not going to keep on, you know, trying to work. Here's 98% of my entire world going toward you, group that says that you despise me and I'm an entitled moron incel or something like that. Rapist. So I, like rapist. A, so I'm a rapist for like a rapist in his heart. It's like straight out of the New Testament. <laughs> original sin. So yeah, just my point being that, you know, I see here, um, especially the antipathy, it creates this ever escalating cycle, right? That spins up and up and up and people become uh, more virulent in their distaste and their uh, lack of ability to see the other side's issue. And this is how you have, you know, two groups of people largely just talking past each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't think about what Scott Alexander calls the gray tribe, and this is the, which he admits it's still a tribe, but it's a tribe with different norms and better norms that's trying to not actually fall into being either of the other, either the blue tribe or the red tribe, as we call them confusingly here in the U.S. Um, so, so with every other country in the world, red equals left, but somehow in the U.S., red equals right. You got right. it the wrong way around. Yes. Uh, and then blue, I don't know the, like, what Just it like means. like the, the side of the road that you drive yeah. on, you got it the wrong yes. way around. Yes, but we're, you know, <laughs> I think like we're at least close to the only country that has, has this color scheme, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, so that makes quite a lot of sense. I mean, the other thing we're mentioning then, you know, the Scott Aronson reaction to this was just to write a piece defend, or excuse me, the Scott uh, Alexander reaction was to write a piece standing up for Scott Aronson and saying, yes, like there is this group of shy male nerds who want to talk to women. They're not very good at it doesn't mean that they have any horrible any anything any horrible plans uh, like they're very usually very nice people it's just that they don't really know how to talk to women and the only way to learn is to try it and not be very good at it at first so can't you go and cut them some slack which i think is a totally reasonable point you had an idea about why we all get accused of being pickpockets what was that <laughs> Right. This was specifically a reference to the humiliation of mandatory training that happens here at universities a lot. Uh, so, so, you know, like imagine if there was some kind of mandatory pickpocket training where they bring in all the workers and they say, pickpocketing is wrong. Don't pickpocket others. Pickpocketing others means reaching into their pockets without permission and taking their stuff and then keeping it. Don't be a pickpocket. All right. And it's like, okay. Um, why are you telling me this though? Like, I know all this already. This is all quite obvious. And, and yet to me, this is very much what most kind of sensitivity training is like, what most of the training about, you know, like 
internet security is like. They're telling you a bunch of totally obvious stuff. And again, why? Well, a lot of it is it really just seems to be to humiliate you to say, look, we, we are going to talk to you like children and you have to sit there and suck it up. Tough luck. Some of it is for legal purposes where if they get sued, they can say, we told them not to do it, right? As if the main reason people pickpocket is they don't, they, no one ever told them not to do it or they don't understand what would constitute it. Uh, although another part of it is ratcheting up the definition so that almost anything counts as pickpocketing, where it's like, well, you looked at what was in someone's pocket without their consent. That's a kind of pickpocketing. So I think that's also what's going on. And once you have your training set up, they do often you know, start having higher and higher standards. Now, I say this just to go and make fun of various training that you'll see, especially on college campuses about sexual harassment. It's like, you know, don't sleep with their students. Oh, I didn't know we weren't supposed to do that. Oh, thank you. Like, come on. Like, we all know this. Right? You know, the reason why people are doing it isn't because they aren't aware of the rules. The reason they're doing it is because they don't like the rules and the rules are stopping them from doing what they want. So, uh, again, if it really an issue of something that's really confusing, be a different story. So maybe actually the Internet security, at least you might think that that's more complicated. Although, honestly, having gone through Internet security training, I'll say that the stuff they train you on is so basic because Honestly, they need to make a test that can be passed by the lowest IQ person in the organization. And therefore, it can't really be hard because otherwise they'd have to fire people over failing not, their IT tests, right, or their yeah. IT training over, over Makes and over. They don't want to do that. So one of the things that we're both fans of is uh, agency, trying to give people a sense of personal agency, individual sovereignty. It seems to me, and I hadn't thought of these two words before, but it seems like antipathy and pity are... Yeah, self-pity, uh, uh, pity for others. Uh, antipathy and self-pity are probably about as close to solvents for agency as possible. Like, it will dissolve your ability to feel like a, a, an agentic individual. Oh, yeah. What That's a great point. I mean, yeah, because like well, the, what I like to tell people is, imagine a person who has the absolute maximum reason to feel antipathy and self-pity. Like someone who was stabbed in the back and now they're paralyzed and they know the person who did it, you know, like, I don't know, it was like your, your ex-wife stabbed you in the back. Now you're paralyzed for, from the neck down for the rest of your life. So you have every reason to hate this person, every reason to feel sorry for yourself. And the question is, if you wanted to help this person, would you go to them and say, be full of antipathy, be full of self-pity? Like, of course not. You'd be trying to go and come up with some story to make them feel better. And it's like, well, Okay, I like I understand why you would be overwhelmed with antipathy and self-pity, but you got to get past that because if you're going to have any enjoyment out of life, if you're going to be able to salvage any part of what you're hoping for, you're going to have to go and focus on what you can do and what you can have now. And just being angry at the at the woman who did this to you and feeling sorry for for poor you, though completely justified, is totally unconstructive. What would you say then? given that we have an incredibly broad number of people who are wallowing in a low agency existence, what's your prescription uh, mm. philosophically or tactically mm. or strategically for getting mm. someone from antipathy and mm. self-pity into agency? The movie What About Bob, actually, the lead psychologist in it has a book called Baby Steps about how someone who has problems needs to give up on the idea of solving them all overnight and instead just try to take small little steps of improvement. Uh, you know, the character is 
mock worthy in the movie, but I think it's totally sensible. If a person is having trouble with life, don't say fix everything overnight Just say, all right, look, let's take some small steps and move from there. So that's what I would be in by doing. I mean, in terms of philosophy, I'd say that philosophically it's easier to go and just realize the philosophy is wrong than to get rid of all the negative negativity that the philosophy has inspired. Because, you know, you know, just the very fact that you decide the philosophy is incorrect doesn't mean you won't, you know, you'll stop feeling bad about the things the philosophy taught you to feel bad about. Uh, but still, I would, I would say, all right, well, just, you know, next time that you are feeling bad about this, remember, like there's a philosophy that originally got me feeling bad about this. The philosophy is wrong. So now like, try to go and rethink the situation from a different point of view. I would say that as well. I mean, also, I honestly, I would just say, don't hang out with like another good baby step is hang out more with people who, who do not feel so much antipathy and self-pity so that your new peer group is encouraging you to improve instead of holding you back. Yeah. I think, uh, the story that you tell yourself about why you're feeling bad and what does it mean that I feel bad and what is the story that I tell myself about that, this kind of recursive uh, narrative game that you play with yourself probably counts for a, a big chunk of the discontent and the pain that you feel, right? Yeah, you have the situation, but then you have these layers of guilt and shame and doubt and self-esteem or lack thereof that you layer on top. And I think that is where the uh, philosophical worldview comes in quite importantly, like, is this happening to me? Did I get to choose this? You know, there's a, a study which I'm sure you've seen about two rats are in uh, wheels, one rat runs, and when it runs, the other rat has to run. The one rat that runs gets all of the benefits from exercise, and the rat that has to run gets all of the downsides from stress. Mm -hmm. The point being that Don't know being, it. <laughs> being able to take your sense of control, your locus of control being internal is a very, very large part of, uh, of life. And, uh, I mean, what's yeah. interesting about that to me is that I actually have a moderate locus control because I just think it's true that luck is important in life. I, you know, so I realized that it would probably be psychologically better for me to have the false belief that there's no luck, but I just think that's such an insane view that I'm not going to so blind myself to the fact, well, you kind of got lucky making this friend at that right at that time. And it's, you know, you You're could hoisted by your own rationality. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, like it's also like, you know, just be really positive about the things that you can change. Focus on those. You don't need to tell yourself a big lie in order to motivate yourself to say, look, there's a lot of stuff that's in my power and I'm going to do that stuff. This does remind me of one of my favorite movies. Uh, I hope this isn't giving away, giving away in spoilers, but it's so obscure that I just doubt that anyone would watch it anyway. But it's called The Upside of Anger and the basic plot. And have you ever seen, have you seen it by any chance? No. Uh, the basic plot is that there is a dad of, you know, there's a family, there's a mom, a dad, and I think it's four daughters. And the dad runs off with the secretary and uh, just disappears and abandons the entire family. And the mom becomes a terrible, raging alcoholic and she just hates the world. She's so mad. And then there's the interaction between her and the daughters and on and on. And then at the end of the movie, they discover that it is not true the father ran away or abandoned them. The father just fell into a ditch and died. And, and he had and nothing to do with the secretary or anything else. And then you just realize, wow, you learn a fact. And then you suddenly realize all this, these, this anger that I had is just wrong, just predicated on a totally false story of the world. And in watching the movie, you can almost instantly see people saying like, I don't feel angry anymore because my anger was based upon a story that is false. 
Now, I don't think that just abandoning a whole philosophy of life is going to make it quite as easy to feel good as that one very particular sense of betrayal. But, you know, like really in the story, it's very psychologically credible that the anger just gets replaced with a sense of horrible guilt that how could I have so wrongly judged this person who actually was loyal to his family the whole time and had an accident. So uh, I swear this makes sense in my mind. Let's see if it makes sense in public. (laughs) I went to dinner with uh, RFK Jr. about three months ago when he was in Austin. It was Ah. a bunch of... There was a bunch of different people there, loads of interesting people. Uh, one of them was Tim Kennedy, who's a Green Beret. You might know mm. he lives in Austin. He does a, mm. a, a sort of um, self-defense thing called Sheepdog Response. Tim Kennedy was open carrying, as he does, because mm. that's that's he's an ex- Wait, uh, Green did, you say, did you say Tim Kennedy? Yes. So so wait, is he is he also a Kennedy? Uh, actually, no. Different, different Kennedy. Not, okay, okay, not okay. The, I, I was getting confused by the story. UFC fighter, Green Beret. Yeah, anyway. Yes, but, but unrelated to the Kennedy family. Precisely correct. Okay. All of RFK Jr.'s security was outside. He had some staff in with him, but it was a, a lady PR person and maybe an assistant of some kind and some other stuff. He had no security inside. Tons outside, right? But no security inside. And I would remember looking at the gun on uh, Tim's hip and thinking, if he pulled that gun out now, and shot RFK Jr. in the head, his entire career would be gone back over with a tooth comb to work out exactly the moment when he became a Russian sleeper agent. Oh, it was that (laughs) UFC fight that they did in Abu Dhabi when secretly the Saudi prince met him backstage and that was when they changed him. And every podcast he's ever done would be reanalyzed bit by bit. He did this series called Finding Hitler, uh, Searching for Hitler or whatever. Oh, the the reason he did that was to get into Argentina because that's where they've got... And what I realized was like individual actions can cause retroactively for the entire story to be rechanged. And it's almost mm-hmm. like the same as what you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. That his entire life would have yeah. been looked at in a different manner. So yeah, I, t- I totally see how that's the case. One mm-hmm. of the things, I guess, to just round out this sort of agency part that I think would be interesting to find out from you is if somebody is, or somebody has a friend that is struggling with the self-pity and the antipathy and the externalized locus of control, overly externalized locus mm-hmm. of control, mm-hmm. what have you found anything that is a good salve for that that can kind of start to give people a little bit of perspective like you can enact change in your life there are things that you can do this isn't just happening to you is there anything philosophically that you find yourself relying on if you end up getting too close to antipathy and self-pity i think much more often about how to make people feel happier with their lives than how to raise their locus of control Um, i so normally what i tell them is look the most important cause of human happiness or unhappiness is whether you're spending a lot of time with people whose company you enjoy. Um, now that itself comes down to locus of control. Like, well, I, I am with, I, I am stuck with people whose company I don't enjoy. And I said, well, like, you're not really stuck with them. Like you may say you're stuck with them, but you could go and try, you know, like, you know, like go through your mental Rolodex of people who already know, aren't there some people that you like more that you don't spend much time with? And could you try to spend more time with them? Some people that you like less and you could just turn down the dial a bit. You don't need to start purging your grandma because she is a big mouth. You could just see her half as often. So, but I would think of that as actually itself, you know, t- definitely touching on locus of control because you're telling them to go and take you know, th- take actions in order to go and make and make themselves happier. Uh, so I guess I would probably start there. In terms of just saying, look, you know, focus on things that you can do that will improve your life and things that you can do. Don't focus on what you can't do. I think that's all totally reasonable. 
I mean, I recently did two really popular posts, one on advice for men on finding their soulmate and the other one on advice for women on finding their soulmate. I think if you go through a lot of it is basically saying like, you know, exert more locus of control. Right. So like, you know, like there's a lot of things you can do and these are some of the easiest steps you can take in order to make what you want to happen happen. But yeah, if you just sit there saying like, poor me, then yeah, nothing's going to happen. Of course, you know, at least almost certainly you, you could just wait to be saved. Someone says, Oh, I'm going to save you. <laughs> what were the important differences between men finding their soulmate and women finding their soulmate? Let's see. Good one. I think for both groups, I said, put less weight on physical attractiveness. Although I think for men, I said, it's especially important for them to put less weight on that. And I said, look, just consider this thought experiment. Imagine you're married to a supermodel, but she has a terrible personality. How do you feel about your life? And they're like, everyone's, yeah, terrible. I mean, I even said, imagine you start dating a supermodel, but she has a terrible personality. How long does it take before you are miserable? And like, yeah, like three weeks. So, all right, well, I think you already agree with my point. It's just a matter of exerting the self-control to focus on personality overlooks, which I think you know, both genders do it, but it's especially bad for men. See, for, uh, in, for both genders, I was telling them things like you know, figure out these top priorities and then just downweight everything else, be flexible and everything else. Uh, for women, I did have this advice of just go older. So like, like just go five or 10 years older, especially because a very common complaint for women is men my age are so immature. All right. Well, they don't have to be your age. They could be five years older and you know, you could go and find an immature guy and then hope to change him and he'll turn out and become a mature guy. But a lot of guys never become mature. If you get an older guy, you can say, well, is he mature already? No. In that case, no. And if he is great, I don't have to speculate about his future maturity because it's, it's already there. Um, now, if someone says, look, I can't possibly do that. It's too gross. It's like, well, What's the most you're willing to do? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I, I see an awful lot of the an awful lot of the complaints from uh, women who are struggling to find men that they think is sufficiently mature at their age. And you see this in the, it. It seems to be tied up in the data that there is a significantly bigger portion of eighteen to thirty men who are single than eighteen to thirty women who are single. So I think women have already largely cottoned on to this. Again, it fixes the tall girl problem of women out earning men socioeconomically because age is one of the biggest predictors of wealth. And if wealth is something that you need to offset, all right, we'll just give him a seven-year head start. And there he is. He's out ahead of you. Yeah. I mean, I think like another big difference I said, well, so for men, I said, look, you just have to get get over your lack of confidence and ask. Right, so that's important. But for women, what I said is, look, it's true that you don't have to ask in order to get dates, but you, you do need to ask to get the guy you want probably. I said, like, you know, for women just to get a little bit more flexible on being willing to go and ask. And I think for them, I said, look, if you just feel tongue tied, like, especially for women, just telling a guy, you seem promising. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh my God, like, I hate you now. Like you told me I seem promising. Like, like it's, it's yeah. like on the one hand, like it is far from throwing yourself at a guy, but same time, I think it is unambiguous. I think I also yeah. mentioned like, you know, the sense of it's always obvious what the other person wants. So there's no need for me to tell them, or it's always obvious what I want. Rather, there's no need to tell them. Like, just forget that nonsense. Yeah. People are not mind readers. We have like, we so greatly overrate other people's ability to read us because we're always thinking what we're thinking, but we never get inside anyone else's head. Right? And the idea that everyone secretly knows what it is you're thinking and they're just playing dumb. 
Especially if you're talking about the opposite sex. Especially if you're talking about the opposite sex. We have no idea how the inside of your mind works. Yeah, I I had a a piece of advice. We got some idea, but... uh, (laughs) Uh, but, I I had a piece of advice I was throwing around for a while about receptivity from women. So a a lot of women still have... They feel like there's an additional uh, lowering in status if they make the first move. Mm -hmm. But there's this story, you'll have heard of dropping a handkerchief that the ladies would have done in the sort of Renaissance period. And the aristocracy would drop a handkerchief, the gentleman would pick it up, and that would be the beginning of the conversation. Like the modern equivalent of that is a gaze that lingers a little bit too long. Mm -hmm. Also, women need to kind of adjust the sights of Mm -hmm. whatever they're shooting with to account for me too and men's concern that they're going to make a woman feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So there's an awful lot of sort of moving 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 parts here one of the other things that i quite enjoy well, yeah, before, you- before you move on so yep. one of my big piece of advice to my daughter is never be afraid to play the i'm not one of those feminist cards w- with men oh yes I, okay so yeah and again this is one where you know, of course like, you know, i knew a lot of people would get get angry about it but i said look i'm not saying to go and denounce women or otherwise i'm saying look just put people at ease if someone is nervous it is common sense and strategically wise just to go and smile and to say, it's all cool. Don't worry. I'm a decent person. I don't prejudge you as being bad. And I think that the I'm not one of those feminist cards is one of the best ones for women to play. It really does distinguish you from women that men just feel like they have to walk on eggshells around to one where they will talk to you freely. Right? It's great for work, great for dating, great for, for actually making friends. I mean, the only thing that's holding people back is loyalty to this philosophical dogma. Why do you think there's been a demonization of having children over the last few years? It feels like this is kind of tied into a lot of feminist meta memes uh, and meta cultures that's going on. We've seen a decline in fertility rates. What what do you think's going on with this demonization of specifically having kids? I think that the demonization comes from a very narrow corner of mostly the internet. The real story is not so much demonization as just apathy and disinterest. Uh, it is true there is a demonization corner. Uh, my younger son reads Reddit's all the time, and he's saying, okay, dad, like, right, the child-free people, they're not that bad, but the antinatalists, they're crazy. <laughs> the antinatalists are the people who post videos of kids getting trampled by horses and stuff like that, and like, what? Right. But I am familiar with philosophical antinatalism. I mean, it really does seem to heavily flow from the work of South African philosopher David Benatar. Uh, and he came up with this argument that, to my mind, is truly bizarre. You know, like he has a number of arguments, but the hardcore argument comes down to no one consents to be born because they can't, because they don't exist yet. And any, everyone who exists will experience some suffering. And even if that suffering is overwhelmingly out, uh, outweighed by, by joy, still, like, it is wrong to ever inflict suffering on anyone without their consent, and therefore it's always wrong to have kids. Right? And this argument has persuaded a strangely large number of people, to my mind. I mean, you know, my reply to this is, so this implies the good Samaritan is evil because you can't, like, how do you know that unconscious guy doesn't want to die? You're going and administering first aid to a man who was beaten uh, into senselessness, but how do you know that he doesn't want to just bleed out? It's like, like, well, there is this philosophical doctrine called hypothetical consent, which normally is bogus because we can just ask you whether you consent, but it is custom made for cases where like, well, he would probably consent if he was conscious, but he can't. Similarly, you would probably consent to be born or to be conceived if you could, but you can't, but it's reasonable to presume it. 
Uh, then there is a broader category of people just think that life isn't worth living. Uh, Epicurus answered this 2,500 years ago, and his, his reply just consisted in, well, we're in Greece, there's cliffs. Don't like it, jump off. <laughs> I have gotten, you know, I, I, I got a threatening email from my university's mental health office for promoting suicide for saying stuff like this. It's like, look, I'm not, do you even understand what a university is about? It's about thinking about things. It's not, like, if that counts as promoting suicide to say Epicurus said something and it, and it's a good argument. I don't know what you're doing on a university campus, but I, I, I am familiar with Benatar. One of my friends has podcasted with him, albeit when he didn't have his screen on because he's still pseudonymous or largely ah, anonymous or whatever. Really? Yeah, I mean, but, he, so. but, he, but he's known as a philosopher, so... But like, no you know, one knows his face, I don't think. Well, he teaches at a university. How can they not know his face? I don't know if he teaches under his real name. I don't know whether that's a pseudonym. I might be wrong. Anyway. No, okay, well... Anyway, so... You can check it for the show notes. Even if we even if we step ourselves a little bit away from the hardcore yes. anti-natalist philosophers, again, you could maybe call it a uh, generalized anti-children culture, Right, uh, and this is more toward the ambiguity uh, that you mentioned about having kids. This hyper individualism. Uh, where do you think that comes from? Hmm. I mean, I think feminism definitely has something to do with it, especially the idea that any woman that thinks that raising kids should be your first priority as an adult is just stupid and foolish, and is sort of being a doormat to the patriarchy. Uh, I mean, it is striking to me that. If there were a girl today in especially a suburban high school who said, I just want to be a mom, I think that the, like, the outcry against that would be overwhelming, not because they hate the idea of having kids, but because they elevate the idea of having a career as being the most important thing in life and a kid as being an optional thing. And I would think of these are two, you know, both two extremely important things in life. And yeah, there's a, there's a trade-off, of course. Right? As a homeschooling dad who actually did all the night shifts for all four of my kids, I can say, yeah, I probably would have one or two more books if I had no kids, but I chose to be less successful as a professor so that I could go and have kids because that was more important to me and still is. Oh, so there's a big, uh, there's a big mimetic element going on here with regards to children. Mm -hmm. Ah, so the, you know, I mean, I, that's totally true. I think that is a separate point, but yes, I'll do to a large degree. Well, so, I mean, at least mimetically in, ter in terms of imitating other people, there's a conformist element. I mean, just the fact that we have baby booms and busts, a lot of it seems to be that child, uh, you know, like you know, the number of children that you want to have is based fairly heavily upon just what's normal in your culture or subculture. So that's uh, you know, you know, one major factor going on, which means you can sort of get a multiplied, you can get a multiplied effect where if women, women there's, let's say women are focusing more on their careers, that has a direct effect of reducing fertility, but it also has the indirect effect of it's now normal to have fewer kids, which then means that even people are not focused on their careers want to go and fit in. Uh, I have worked quite a bit with the actual data of fertility and especially design, you know, I think both uh, accomplished and desired fertility. And what's, you know, so like two big lessons that I like to trumpet. So one is, at least on American data, it is you know, that uh, it is not true that income by itself leads to lower fertility. In fact, income by itself leads to higher fertility. Really what's going on is that education leads to lower fertility. And so, and if you race education against income, you see that, ed that education reduces fertility and income increases it. And the basic upshot of this is that the most fertile people are high-income, low-education groups, like, say, plumbers. 
And on the other hand, the least fertile groups are high education, low income, like, say, philosophers who drive a taxi. All right. So that's and once you put it this way, you realize, hmm, so it isn't really the material element. It's more of the social element of education. If we actually were teaching kids in school things like babies are babies are gross, babies are terrible. David Benatar has the right argument. I don't know of any school that really does that. It's more of you just teach people other priorities as being of overwhelming importance. And then just like with problems, if you talk about one problem all the time, you are implicitly saying other problems don't matter. Mm. And if you talk about only one life goal as being important all the time, you're implicitly saying other life goals don't matter. Uh, the other result that I think is very, well, let's see, it's not surprising, but it's really worth saying because it's the kind of thing people wouldn't want to say without data, but I do have the data. It's that women's education and women's income are much more important for determining the outcomes than the men's education and income. For both genders, it's got the same direction, but basically it looks very much like women's preferences are a lot more important for the outcome, which comes down to something like you know, women have an actual definite opinion about how many kids they want to have. Men are more along for the ride and like, oh, you want to have three kids? Great. You want to have one kid? Great. Uh, it's not quite that men don't have any preference at all and don't bargain or don't select, but it really is more of the of the kind of decision that women uh, we, we, women dominate in within the family is how many kids are we going to have? Right. I, so right. So a, when I would say in terms of getting fertility up, you got to change women's minds. That's more important generally. A high income man married to a medium low education woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, might be able to get this moving a little bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, like, by the way, I also, in my advice for men and women, I say, like, you know, find out how many kids they want early. Maybe not the first date, but <laughs> say by the third date, like, it's important thing to know. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, social desirability bias is something that I learned from you that you said is the most underrated effect in all of psychology. And I, I kind of can't stop seeing it now. Good. Explain yes. it to people that aren't familiar. Simple idea. When the truth sounds bad, people lie. And often the truth, if the truth is said sufficiently and frequently, people stop even being conscious about lying. I mean, really mundane examples are things like, am I fat? There's only one acceptable answer to that. Oh, Brian, you look great. You're wonderful. You're beautiful. That is the way you are. Uh, we can see this in lots of different areas. You can see it in things like church attendance. More people claim they went to church than actually went to church. More people claim to vote than actually vote. Uh, one of my favorite examples of all is there's actually a study of, first of all, you ask people, would you abort a Down syndrome fetus? And only about, like, I think like 20, 25% of people say they, uh, say they would. But then we see what, ha what happens when people are actually in that situation, and then it's more like 90%. All right. Now, again, this doesn't necessarily mean that people were truly lying, but they were just blurting out what sounded good without thinking about it until they needed to actually make a decision. And then suddenly it's no longer just words. I've gone, oh my God, like, I don't want to do that. Stated and revealed preferences yes. are a hell of a drug. Oh, yes, that's the, quite right. Now, I have a lot of applications of this. Some, again, as mundane as the, the strange language of, want to come to my party on Saturday? Oh, I can't. It's like, hmm, will you be in a cage? <laughs> will you be uh, in the middle of Siberia, uh, uh, unable to get to a plane in time? I, what do you mean you can't? 
And the answer is right. Fine. I don't want to is the yeah. truth. I say I can't, you know, because that sounds better, even though it is uh, actually literally correct. I won't. Yes, I won't. I <laughs> when you come to my body, I won't. won't. I won't. Yes, I won't. <laughs> Why? Why not? Because I don't. Because I have th- so, uh, there are things to do that would be better than that for me. Like what is that? Like sitting at home watching TV. That's better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Often the answer. Uh, but then I say there are many areas of life where social desirability bias just becomes so overwhelmingly it's almost the only thing going on. So I encourage people just to go and first of all read any political speech by a politician they don't like. And just go through the sentences one by one and say, like, could this possibly be literally true? And I think you'll find, wow, like the politicians I don't like are lying all the time. When PolitiFact goes and says Trump lies like 70% of the time, like, no, 99.9% is the correct number. Because you just read the sentence and it'll be, the sentences will be things like, we're doing everything possible for this. No, you aren't. If you're doing everything possible, there you would spend zero on anything else, right? So no, wrong, false, and obviously so, therefore a lie. Is that not a part of just the imprecision of language and the fact that when we speak, there is a degree of uh, like whimsy that kind of comes along for the ride? Interesting question. Yeah, many people say, all right, well, everybody knows it's not meant to be literally true. I say, actually, it's the kind of thing where I think the like, politicians are playing on the ambiguity of maybe it's literally true, maybe it's not. If they say this is an existential risk, that's Putin's story about why they have to invade Ukraine. It's an is existential risk, comrade. Mm-hmm. All right, and it's like hmm. now, like when people hear this, is everyone is ever are all the supporters saying, well, obviously it's not really existential, but so like he's saying that to get people's attention, or are there are a whole lot of people who are actually believing it, just like it's the truth from God's mouth. And I think mm-hmm. actually in politics, there's a lot of people who are just taking it very naively, and you know, and and so I do think it is a problem. I think that. Uh, it's not merely that you have to double the rhetoric to get the same result that you would have gotten if everyone spoke honestly. I think rather there are just a lot of things that government does that if people were honest, just wouldn't exist. Like, like, like if people during COVID were to say, look, I'll, you know, uh, ra- rather than saying, look, we're doing this to keep people safe. They said, we're doing this in order to re- reduce the number of fatalities from 1 million to 950,000. There'd just be a lot less support for the measures if you were if you were that honest about it. It, it what well, that fundamentally comes down to is it useful or is it true, right? There are things that you can say that are useful, uh, the things that are true that become less useful, and you go, okay, well, what's the point of this communication? Is it to communicate the truth or is it to get the intended outcome? Yes. Although, as soon as someone starts doing that, then it's like, wait, useful for who? Useful for you to get power and hold it? Hmm. I wonder if that's something politicians care about. Yeah. As opposed to getting the best overall result for society, doing careful cost-benefit analysis after collecting the best possible statistics we could find. Even that, though, all the way down, still ends up with lexical semantic fuckery, and you know, just it, it's uh, it, trademark. It, yeah, precisely. It's lexical semantic fuckery. You heard it here first. Um, because what people then start to do is they make lies of omission rather than lies of commission. They purposefully obfuscate, not using words that allow them to be held up. It's what happens in law courts. It's so on and yes. so forth. Well, we, I, I didn't yes. say we can't that prove we, that it's necessarily not the case that precisely it's precisely, possible that precisely. yeah yeah it just it just becomes a game of, of plausible deniability. So I I think this is kind of the equivalent of the justification for a performance-enhancing drugs legitimized Olympics. Mm-hmm. I think just let let the gloves come off and lie as much as you want. Don't ever hold anybody to any account and just let it become a neuro-linguistic programming soup mm-hmm. and just see who can make the best lies all the way down and let's see who wins then. Mm. Yeah. 
I, like, <laughs> I, I, I confess to some slight uh, like emotional sympathy, but I think that, you know, if you just look at the world and to see like, you know, the very worst governments in the world are the, have, have the biggest lying demagogues. Uh, part of this I'll say is because when, though these are almost always dictators, and the dictators can just get away with bigger lies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, assuming like you know, there there are just uh, so many fun applications of social desirability bias. One of my favorites actually is understanding what is the point of propaganda. I'm a huge Orwell fan, and if you read Orwell, it sounds like the whole point of propaganda is just to tell you know, like is 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 basically to uh, you know, obscure the actual the actual truth, and we're basically to crush the truth. Or you know, excuse me, not propaganda, censorship rather, censorship. So so you read Orwell, it sounds like the whole point of censorship is that. The government wants to crush the truth because they know that in the contest between the truth and a lie, the lie will be defeated. So they have to go and imprison anyone anyone who speaks the truth. Nice story. But here's the thing. If you go and look at dictatorships, say that they spend a lot more time crushing other lies than they do crushing the truth. If you go to Saudi Arabia, they're not that worried about the atheist saying, like, how do we know that the Quran is even true? They're much more worried about a mullah saying, you know, Allah does not ordain the house of Saad. Allah ordains me. Those are the people that put fear into the hearts of a Middle Eastern Islamist tyrant because that person is saying a competing lie. So the title mm. of this essay is you know, Monopolize the Pretty Lies. The point of censorship is say, only I get to tell ridiculous lies. Anyone who says any other lies, I will kill you. I certainly think, I remember Rob Henderson writing something about the goal of propaganda is not to control what you think, it's to convince you of what other people think. So it's basically a game of, you will, through the Abilene paradox and through mimetic desire and through social desirability bias and so on, you will end up doing what you think other people think. So the goal is not actually to change your mind, it's to change your mind about what you think other people are thinking. Probably both, but uh, it's a good point. Yeah, you know the Abilene paradox. Sounds really familiar, but really it, good. I learned I learned about it last week, and now I can't yes. I can't shut up. I mean, about it. It's one where it. everybody is is it sort of like the Kane's beauty contest, where you're trying to figure out what other people will think, uh, whoever other people think is the most beautiful person. To to a degree, yeah. The Abilene paradox is a situation in which a group makes a decision that is contrary to the desires of the group's members because each member assumes the others approve of it. It explains how a number of accurate individuals can become idiots when they get together. Think Emperor's New Clothes. An acquaintance invites you to his wedding despite not wanting you there because he thinks you want to attend. You attend despite not wanting to because you think he wants you there. At a business meeting, someone suggests an idea uh, the making the influencer the face of the brand a, a trans influencer. Each member has misgivings about this but assumes that the others will consider them transphobic if they speak out. So everyone approves the idea despite no one liking it or basically all of North Korea. Yes. Right. I, I strongly suspect that you've, you've got five or 10% true believers in North Korea at least. Yes, I think, you know, I mean, I also have no doubt that if you open the border of South Korea, a large majority of the population would leave very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, you had this other tweet that I loved from a while ago. Dear intellectuals, if you ever decide you've been deeply wrong for years, don't instantly rebrand yourself as a wise spokesperson for your new view. Instead, <laughs> publicly admit that your judgment clearly isn't very good and stop pontificating for a few years. Why? Yeah. It is inspired by a few particular people who remain nameless who did this bizarre transformation from I start off as the world's expert on this view and now that view is totally wrong and stupid. And now I'm the expert on the other view. Like, well, if it's totally wrong and stupid, like, what does that say about the fact that you held it for, for 10 years? 
I mean, I just think that you, again, it's lot, while it's logically possible that a person could just see through the errors and become incredibly thoughtful about a new view, I just think that it's highly unlikely. And this is more of someone has either fame or money or both on the line, and therefore they can't actually go through this honest period of contrition where they just say, gee, like, if I could be that wrong. What would, be a, what would be a hypothetical example of someone doing this? Hmm. I mean, one of my favorite ones is all of the rabid Stalinists who deconverted and then quickly claimed to be the leading spokesman for anti-communism. This is a big deal in the 40s and 50s. Uh, Whitaker Chambers comes to mind as one example. Let's see, who else? Sidney Hook. Let's see, there's a bunch of other ones. Uh, let's see. Um, I think Max Eastman as well, right? So basically, like you know, like he was a Trotskyist, but anyway, uh, you know, they they spend like years going and acting like Joseph Stalin is the savior of mankind, and then it's like, oh, but uh, turns out he was a horrible mass murderer. Whoops. Okay, now I'm going to go and tell everybody how uh, to be an anti-communist. I mean, on the one end, like if you have specific things you've observed, then fine. Say like I actually saw the killing fields, so listen to me i was but but on the other hand to say but now i'm the expert on how anti-communism should work no i think we should probably listen to the people who never thought it was a good idea and were <laughs> prescient <clears throat> i mean i will say that i am i especially have it out for whitaker chambers who wrrote a totally unfair review of ayn rand's atlas shrugged here's someone who who hated communism from her teenage years when she first encountered it never had a good word to say about it I think had a lot of insightful things to say about how horrible it was. And then Whitaker Chambers has the nerve to call her a fascist in his review for National Review. It's like, like that guy. Like, you know, I mean, you, know, you just want to say, you know what? You like, there's a reason you became a Stalinist, which is that you don't have a correct attitude about how to think about ideas and how to treat other human beings. Mm, it's uh, the sort of performative empathy or I guess social desirability bias sort of wrapped up in a, a world where your your words are more important than your deeds, which they mm -hmm. certainly are now, but they are basically at any distance, right? Because we mm -hmm. can't see what you're doing, but we can read what you wrote or hear what yeah, you said. Sure. Um, and yeah, this has got spun up so much more recently where you see uh, Lizzo, you know, is supposed to be this champion for bigger bodied women, but it turns out that she's fat shaming all of her dancers backstage and making them eat <laughs> bananas out of the vaginas of Amsterdam strippers, uh, <laughs> Ellen DeGeneres. Or, or, I, uh, I have no knowledge of any of this. I'll, well, I'll, I'll take I, your word for it. <laughs> I promise you it's true. I promise you there's videos out there. Um, and yet my point being that it's often the people that proclaim the loudest about a thing that mm -hmm. are the ones that are the worst uh, mm -hmm. people committing that mm -hmm. uh, that particular misgiving. Right. This reminds me of a couple of other essays that I have. I have one called, you know, Could Such a Man Care? And it just starts with, all right, you go and you hear the official, the official speeches of Kim Jong-un or Maduro, and it's all about how I'm such a great, compassionate person. I love the people. I have the poor. I'm a champion. And at the current stage in their career, you're like, yeah, sure, we know what you're really doing, what you're up to. But then you go back in time and realize there was some earlier period when they didn't have power and they couldn't really go and do horrible things, and they were just, but they were still going and expressing the same ideas. Kim Jong Un's not a good example because he's born into this, but Maduro is a perfectly fine example. But anyone who starts off as a non-politician, an activist, and then they eventually get it, you can go and find what they originally saying and say, all right, well, like. And like, you know, one reaction is, well, obviously they were really corrupted by power or whatever. But you know, my reaction to this is, look, 
Think about the nicest people that you know in real life. Can you imagine that they would become mass murderers if you put them in charge? I was like, like no. Like the nicest people I know, like like they might they probably get overthrown or, or assassinated, but they would not be ordering anyone to be killed. They're just too nice to do that kind of thing. And so when you look at someone who has power and they and they have all of this wonderful altruistic rhetoric and they had it for a long time and you say, well, they got corrupted. No, much better story is they were always terrible. They're always the kind of person that was going and just telling people what they want to hear, demagoguing, exploiting social desirability bias to gain power. And once you realize that, it's like, hmm, the fact that people are saying this kind of flowery altruistic talk, there's a good reason to go and distrust those people because it's just so common for them when they get power to be terrible. I love it. Brian Kaplan, ladies and gentlemen. Brian, where should people go? They want to keep up to date with everything you're doing. Uh, Great question. So all of my books, uh, so the main ones we talked about today were uh, Don't Be a Feminist, as well as How Evil Are Politicians and Voters as Mad Scientists. Those are all about all my books are available on Amazon. These books of essays are real cheap, just 12 bucks. I haven't raised the price despite high inflation. I also blog for Bet On It. And finally, I still have a personal webpage at bcaplin.com. Awesome. Ryan, I appreciate you. Thank you. Fantastic being here. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> 